Colossians 2, 6, and 7. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. Thanks for praying for our family as we were away. It is great to be home, and I uh, mean the word home with all that home means. It is wonderful to be back. Great to be home worshiping here together with you. Had a great time just to be able to connect as a family and with our family back in Michigan. And it is just a joy to be able to worship together with you. And also to take a look at Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Invite you to turn there. And as you do, let me just take care of one um, College Park family news. And that is that Pat Overstreet, a longtime member here at College Park, passed away this week. She is the mom of Jenny Good. And uh, that funeral service will be Monday at uh, 10 o'clock here in the auditorium. And the uh, visitation for that is today from 4 to 8 at the Flanner Buchanan Funeral Home on uh, Broad Ripple. So, again, Pat Overstreet, uh, memorial service, 10 o'clock on Monday here at College Park. Got Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7 open there in front of you. Let's uh, pray together and ask the Lord to help us. For two services now, Lord, you have helped us to reconnect to the truth that you are Lord. And I'm so grateful for that. I'm grateful for the the silence in the middle of the second service that indicated you were very much speaking. And Lord, the freshness of the first service as we just dove into what this means, that you, Jesus, are our tradition. Christ, Jesus, the Lord, is what defines us. And so would you, I pray, do the same thing now here in this third service. You would please, Lord, open our eyes to the things that you want to say. Would you make it personal? Would you make it real? Would you make it live? We can't do that, Lord, on our own. I just have words that don't even fully capture what is on the page here in front of me. And so I'm asking for you to empower me and the listeners and your word to unleash the truth of your beautiful scripture and apply it to our needy hearts. I pray for the person here today or persons who just simply don't care anymore. And I pray that today they'd start to care again and that you would turn the light bulb back on or warn them about the path that they're upon. So help us, Jesus. We pray this in your name, in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the more painful moments in the transition from Holland to Indianapolis was the day that I closed up my pastoral office at Calvary. In the back side of my office was a long file cabinet, and in that file cabinet were all of my counseling files. And I had to decide, do I take these with me? Do I throw them away? What do I do with these? So I opened that file drawer and began to go through them. I've got to be honest with you that going through your old files as a counselor is not a fun experience. Let me take that back. A few of those files were fun. 
Because I could think of people whose lives had radically changed, people who'd really turned a corner. I mean, they were like going this direction and God got a hold of them and they made a 180 degree turn and they really turned their life around. But when you invest your life in the people and you use the word and you believe that they can change and you know that they can, but they don't, it's a, it's a deep disappointment to you. And so when I looked at those files, about half of them represented people who were still stuck in the same things. Or marriages that had fallen apart. Kids who had walked away from their families or parents who had given up on their kids. Sin issues that had never been conquered. And so the files that were there just kind of represented the kind of a dark side of my ministry. This reality of the fact that there are some people who just simply don't change. And if you love Jesus, and if you love the Bible, and if you love people, that should bug you big time. That people don't change. And yet the reality is, we all know that to be true. We probably all know someone who used to be sitting right here, and they're not here anymore. And it's not just that they aren't here anymore, and they've gone to another church. It's not just that they're not here anymore, and maybe they're, they've moved away. It's that they're not here, and they're not anywhere. Because they've said, no thanks, Christianity just isn't for me. You don't believe me? Some of you probably have an old copy, of, or the most recent copy, of the College Park Church Pictorial Directory. You know what I'm talking about? I had one of those when I was candidating here. I asked the, the uh, Search and Recognition Committee if I could have one, and so I started to look at some of your family photos. <laughs> some of you have really changed since that last pictorial directory. Uh, many for good. Others, well, we won't go there, Okay. But here's my challenge to you. Take that church pictorial directory and go through it. And you'll see. They're not here anymore. And Maybe you know they went somewhere else, but there's other people you, you know in that directory who've just simply said, no, I'm, I'm done. And they've literally walked away from Christ. Now, as a pastor and as a dad and as a husband, that really bothers me. It's prompted me to kind of ask this question. So what could we do, what could I do, what could the church do to help people remain or become, over the long haul, more rooted in Christ? Is there anything that I could do that would help people draw deep roots into who Jesus is, such that when the the winds of temptation, the current of trials, or the strong winds of difficulties come their way, that they would remain strong and rooted in Christ? And this morning, that's exactly what we're going to talk about. Because in this text, in Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, the Apostle Paul talks about what it means to be rooted in Christ. Our series title for the entire book of Colossians is The Core, Living with Jesus at the Center. And this section that we're in right now is called Jesus-Centered Ministry. In other words, we've been taking the doctrinal truths of chapter 1, what it means for Jesus to be supreme and sovereign over all, and now we're trying to figure out how to be able to make that work and how we do ministry to one another. And today wraps up that little mini-series, and then we're going to launch into a new little mini-series within the book of Colossians on Jesus-centered thinking. The first message on Jesus-centered ministry was the idea that suffering with him makes the word heard. And I tried to make the case um, from chapter 1, the, the latter part, verse 24 to about 28, that when you 
choose to treasure Christ and then you are called to suffer with Him, that you fill up the afflictions of Christ and when you suffer with Him, your suffering makes the word heard. And we've seen that with Al Arshambo. We saw that with Sophie Carmichael's funeral. That suffering with Jesus makes the word heard. Then you heard from Nate on what it means for the gospel to be this mystery of the ministry that we're entrusted with. That is, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Then we heard from Joe Barnabas about the need for us to pursue Christian maturity and to keep pressing on. And that Christian ministry is, in essence, the call to help people become mature. And today we wrap this up by trying to help us understand. So how do we help our kids, people we love, new believers, and even people who've been in church for a long time, stay rooted in Christ so that they last for the long haul. Or you could put it this way, that Jesus-centered ministry essentially is a call to help people connect Christ to life for life. Meaning that I want to try and figure out how can I help you to take these truths of the book of Colossians and apply them in your life and that you could do that not just for a couple weeks or a year, but that you'd be able to do it over the long haul and really connect Jesus Christ to where you live and do that for 50, 60, 70, 80, even 90 years. So that's what we're going to look at this morning is this whole idea of what does it mean for us to be rooted in Christ. I want to remind you, as you look at chapter 2 and verse 8, the next verse coming up next week, that the problem in the church at Colossae was this, that they were beginning to drift from Christ. And he was concerned that in the midst of all the things that were swirling around them, both their opportunities to believe wrong things and then to focus on wrong things in the church, that they would somehow begin to drift from Jesus. So we don't really know exactly what the Colossian problem was, but one thing is clear, whatever it was, was causing them a so subtle subtle drift from Jesus. Look at verse 8. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to who? Christ, right. So he says, be wary of philosophy, empty deceit, human tradition, elemental spirits. So on the one hand, we got this spiritual thing that's going on. On the other hand, we got this human tradition thing that's happening. He says, be careful, because these things, if they're not in accordance with Christ, will cause you to drift from the heart of what the gospel really is. And so what we're going to do today is talk about how do we help people know how to follow Jesus? How do we help them draw deep roots into Christ so that they last over the long haul? And I don't know about you, that's a really important thing to talk about. i got four kids that I want them to grow and be rooted in Christ, not me. I want them to be rooted in Christ, not the church. I want them to be rooted in Christ, not their Sunday school teachers. And all those things that I just mentioned are good. But those things apart from Christ will fail, disappoint, and they won't last. I want my kids and I want new believers who are rooted in Christ so that when difficulties come, they stand the test of time. This morning we're going to look at two things. First, what it was that Paul said this church had received, or what have we received, what have we been given, what's our tradition, and secondly, what does it mean to walk? What, what is that all about? How do we walk in Him? And we're going to see what that's all about. So what we've received and what we've walked, that's our outline this morning. So first, look at verse 6. It says this, Therefore, as you 
have received, or as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Notice the word, therefore. Whenever you see the word, therefore, I'm sure someone's taught you this before, you always need to ask yourself, why is it therefore, right? And the reason that it's therefore is because of verse 4 and verse 5. So go back and look at it. He's providing the linkage between what he's saying in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, to what he's saying in chapter 2 and verse 8 about core thinking or Jesus-centered thinking. And here's what he says in verse 4. I say this in order that no one may delude you. So he's worried about them being deluded with plausible arguments. So he's worried that they're going to believe stuff that makes sense but isn't true. There's a lot of stuff in the world that makes sense that's not right. I mean, okay, that makes sense, it's just not true. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So here's what happens. Paul sees that they're they're in the midst of this culture, that they've got all sorts of things flying at them. They got philosophies and they got legalistic things. They got all this tradition stuff and they, they got all these things that they could believe and they got all this stuff flying at them. And Paul says, and I see how you are firm in your faith and I'm so thrilled in that and I want you not to, to go to the extreme being involved in elemental spiritual human tradition. Instead, and here's where we are, verse six and seven. So, got verse four, five, eight, and between there is six and seven. That's a brilliant thought, isn't it? So, you got six and seven between there, and he said, while you're right here, I want you to be rooted in Christ. So I'm confident of where you are, verse 4 and 5, and I don't want you to go here, so here's how you remain rooted in Christ. So that's where we are in the midst of this text. And I love it when the Bible gives me little nuggets of truth that helps remind me what's the most important thing. Because what happens is with so much stuff coming at us, with so much information and so many things that you could believe, We need the summary in order to help us know what is the most important. And therefore, what Paul says here is that the most important thing for us to understand is Christ the Lord. You see, what he's doing here is he's giving us focus. Focus. That in the midst of all of the other things that we could believe, he's saying, this is what you need to focus on. And I'm really glad that he does this because I don't know about you, but there are times in my life when I need someone to help me focus on what's most important. You see, as people who follow Jesus, there is this tendency on either side of the equation for us to have particular deficiencies. One deficiency would be a truth deficiency. The other would be a trust deficiency. And let me explain how these two things can cause you to drift away from Christ. The first would be a truth deficiency. And that would be that either you believe the wrong thing about Jesus, or you don't believe it in balance with something else that needs to be believed about Jesus. Example, 1 John. The book of 1 John was written essentially because a group of believers were believing that Jesus was fully God, but they didn't believe he was fully man. And John writes the Gospel of 1 John, or the, the letter, Epistle of 1 John, in order to help this church know they've got to balance out Jesus' full nature of God and full nature of man. But there's also maybe a church tradition that you grew up in, or the kind of environment that you were raised in, where the church so emphasized grace and God's forgiveness, and they never emphasized the truth and the reality of obedience. 
Or some of, more of us were likely raised in an environment where the church so emphasized law and obedience that you left feeling like you were just the scum of the earth and what a worm am I and the, the kind of the, the, the banter or the badge of preaching was how many toes can I step on this week? And so you felt bad, bad, bad and the grace of God was rarely there evident or at least as prominent as the, the judgment of God. And so what you have is you have truth deficiencies that either you, you tip to one side or the other or you tip this way and not this way. Randy Elkhorn um, talks about that we need to build a bridge of grace that can bear the weight of truth. You see, Scripture often tells us that Scripture, um, or Scripture often tells us that truth, by definition, is the balance of two very important things, like God's judgment and His mercy. His sovereignty and our need to respond. That that there's this balance that needs to be maintained, and usually deficiencies happen when we get things out of balance. Now that's one thing. The other deficiency I think is far more common, and that is a trust deficiency. What do I mean by this? For most of us who were raised in the church, and those of us who grew up, maybe that wasn't your background, but for many of us it was, what happens is that over time we see the ways that God works. We, we, see, we hear about the things that, that God uses. We, we, we've seen the ways that God can do certain things by using certain programs or methods or even disciplines like Bible reading, prayer time, coming to a morning service or a prayer time. Various things that it seems like God seems to use. And originally, here's what happens. Originally, those things were really good. They helped bring us to Christ. They, they helped nurture our spiritual relationship. But over time, something weird happens. We start to trust in those things, those methods, those forms, those programs. And we've forgotten that those were the things that were supposed to lead us to Christ. Anybody else? Have the scenario where you read your Bible, you pray, you walk away and go, that didn't bring me any nearer to Christ today. And I can think, I've done my duty because I've done those things. Or you come Sunday after Sunday because coming to church on Sunday morning is the thing that you do. But you it's been a long time since you've met with Jesus. And what happens is that because we can look historically and see how God worked, or we can see the things that seems to work in other people's lives, or, or we develop these certain equations of how God works, we end up putting God in a box, trusting in those things, and saying, this is what you have to do in order to be right or in order to grow. And that is a far more common problem in the church, isn't it? We end up trusting in the model and neglecting the master. We end up trusting in the methodology and neglecting who Jesus really is. Now, why do I say all of this by background? The reason is because of the word received. He says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord. That word received means this. It means to receive from another. And it carries the nuance of a tradition. Something that's handed down from somebody else. Tradition. Now, immediately when I say the word tradition, we have a loaded term on our hands. Because for some of you, tradition is a really great word. You're like, oh yes, I love tradition. I feel safe and honoring and historical. And then there's other of you, others of you who hear the word traditional, and all you can think of is, ooh, right? That's all you can think of. Or for you, it's a really bad term because it's what your grandparents talked about. Tradition, tradition, tradition. And you're like, I had up the ear with tradition, right? So he says, you have a tradition. And here's what the text is telling us. Is that Paul has given to these people a tradition 
And that tradition is something they need to wrap their hearts around. You see, that's the problem and the beauty of a tradition is that you wrap your heart around it and it becomes emotionally important such that you don't even know really even why it's important. It just is. For instance, uh, when my parents uh, changed denominations when I was about 10 years old, the denomination we were in before, um, it was part of the tradition that you didn't go out to eat on Sundays. That was part of the environment. Not saying anything bad or negative about that. That's just the way that it was. Some of you may still have that tradition, and that's great. No problem. I didn't like that as a kid. Okay? I thought, why can't we just go out to eat? What's the problem? They're like, no, we can't. So when I found out that we were going to change to a different church, one of the first questions I asked was, so do these folks believe we can go out to eat on Sunday? And they said, yeah. I'm like, okay, that's great. We'll go. No problem. Because I was thrilled. So the tradition changed, okay? So those traditions are things that we, we kind of hold to, right? And sometimes we don't even know why. Or here's another one. When we go on vacation, we have some family traditions that we do that are pretty important to our kids. About three years ago, I had this idea of doing a time capsule at the end of our uh, camping experience. So we took a piece of paper out and we wrote down all the fun things that we did. I put it in a little propel bottle. And then I thought, here's what I'll do. I'll swim out about 30 feet into the water. The lake that we are in is really clear. You can see where I'm going to be from the shoreline. I'm going to drop the bottle down. And then next year we'll come back and I'll find it. (laughs) Dumb idea. Because I swim out there two years ago, and I'm spending half my vacation trying to find the ridiculous time capsule. And I can't find it. I'm swimming around and swimming around and swimming around. I can't find this time capsule anyway. So last year, I wised up. I said, okay, we're going to have the time capsule somewhere. We're going to find it this year. So I, we, we did the same thing, put it in the, bottle, in the bottle, and then we put some rocks around it in about three feet of water, and then we, we put it into the, into the ground. So first day on vacation, the kids are like, let's go find the time capsule, Dad. And all the way out. All the way walking out to find a time capsule, I'm thinking, Lord, please, you know where that time capsule is. You've got to help me find it. So I find the rocks, and, I, and I'm sure this is where it is, I, I think. And I'm pulling the rocks back, and I stick my hand in the, down in the muck. And it's, what I learned is that over a year, muck settles on top of a lake. It falls to the bottom, and the, the lake gets, I don't know if it gets shallower or not, but the bottom gets muckier. So how's that for your science lesson today? So... I put my hand in, and sure enough, I felt the bottle. I pulled it out, and my kids were like, yeah, the time capsule. So this year, we did it, and I buried it somewhere out in the woods, and we have a map and everything else. It's part of our tradition. Here's another one. Um, every year, we like to go to, um, in northern Michigan, things are a little different in northern Michigan. Can, you, can I just tell you that? It's a little different. A lot more guns, uh, a lot more pickups, and um, there's a, uh, not the pickups are bad, don't. Pickup guys don't send me an email like, hey, what are you saying, dude? So I'm just telling you, it's just different up there, okay? So one of the things that's different is there's something called the bump and run. Bump and run. How many of you have ever been to a bump and run? Let me see your hands. Oh, yeah, sweet, okay. All right, so i got to explain this to you. All right, it's NASCAR full contact. That's what it is, okay? So it's a cross between an auto race and a crash-up derby. And what it is is a short track race with these old clunker cars, and the goal is to finish first, you win a prize, but they also have prize for the first person, get this, to roll the car over, all right, so that's the first prize, all right? They also have prizes for someone in the audience who could come and drive a death trap around the race, okay? And, and your goal is to be able to finish. Well, the bump and run has become a part of our tradition camping, and we just love doing it and see who's going to win this year. 
But we decided this year we couldn't do it because of some scheduling things. And so I said to our boys, I said to my wife, look, we have to explain this to them because they're going to be, like, devastated. So I sat them down on the bench, and I said to them, hey, guys, look, this year we're not going to do the, 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 the bump and run. And I was really worried. One of my boys was like, the bump and run? We're not, it was like, it's going to ruin his vacation. So I had to work him through it and everything else. Why is it so important to him? Because that's his tradition. That's what we've done as a family. Okay? So I tell you all of those illustrations to help you know that we are committed internally to things. Sometimes we don't even know why we're committed to them. Sometimes it's related to the past. But the fact of the matter is, we've got a lot of emotional attachment to tradition. And what Paul is saying here is really important. That the tradition that we have been handed more than anything else is this tradition. Christ Jesus the Lord. That's your tradition. So regardless of what background you've come from, what your denominational heritage is, or even what you think in, in terms of what your background really is all about, the central thing that defines who and what we are is this singular tradition that my tradition is Christ Jesus the Lord. Why is that important? It's important that we help people when they come to Christ as they grow at College Park that they know that, look, your tradition is not just this church. It's not the people in the church. It's not the programs of the church. Because sometimes what happens is people begin to trust in those things. Or we have such emotional attachment to those things that we end up making church a real big mess. You don't believe me? Just wait till someone tries to change your program. You're like, oh, you can't change my program. I mean, Moses was doing this, right? I mean, we have this attachment like you're... Like you're Changing one of the Ten Commandments. And we, what we have to realize is that when that happens, and as people grow in that context, if we begin to separate Christ from the core of what we are as a church and as a body of believers, what happens is people begin to trust those things. And here's the problem. Pastors will disappoint you. Church programs will fail. Traditions change. And if you're not careful, pretty soon people don't even know what they're clinging to anymore. And here's part of the reasons why. Because we haven't pointed them sufficiently to Christ. Because He doesn't change. And He has the ability to meet people's needs that our programs can't even touch. And the reality is, to be rooted in Him is the only safe place. Don't be rooted in me. Don't you be rooted in a program. Don't you be rooted in a model or a method. We have to be rooted in Christ and help teach our children that it's about Jesus, not just our home and our family, and keep bringing them back to the truth of who Jesus is. So my tradition is Christ Jesus the Lord. So someone says to you, so you go to this church, College Park. Yeah, invite them. Say, come, what's your church about? One thing, Christ Jesus the Lord. That's what it's about. Well, what kind of church is it? It's a Jesus-centered church. What kind of worship do you have? Jesus-centered church. Jesus-centered worship. What kind of preaching do you have? Bad preaching, right? No. What kind of preaching do you have? We have Jesus-centered preaching. That's, tell them that. Well, what else? Come and see. And see if you meet Jesus. So, what do we mean when we say that Jesus Christ is the Lord? What do we, what do we mean by these words? We're so familiar with them, aren't we? The word Christ... It's the word that means Messiah. It means the anointed one. It was used for prophets, for kings, for rulers, whose God's hand, whose God's hand was upon. Used for people that God chose and said, you're my set-apart servant. And when we say that about Jesus, we're saying he was the set-apart one to do God's bidding. We also say he's not only Christ, but he's also Jesus. We, well, we know this name, don't we? It's a personal name. It's an intimate name. 
You know what the name means? It's the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew Old Testament named Joshua or Yeshua, which means the Lord saves or the Lord is salvation. So think of this. Every time you say the name Jesus, you know what you're saying? Every time you say, yeah, Joshua. Every time you're saying, from probably a boy named Joshua, um, who just realized his name and Jesus are connected. So um, that's great. When you pray, what you're saying is, the Lord is salvation. And listen to me, the name that is the defining line between heaven and hell is the name Jesus. The name that defines whether somebody is redeemed or unredeemed is the name Jesus. And Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Why? Because He's the only one who can bring people to God. He's the only one whose name not only means in nomenclature, but reality that the Lord will save. It's Jesus. So when you confess that name, realize what you're saying. You're not just saying a name. You're saying everything that He is. That's not even my favorite name. My favorite one is the next one, which is the Lord. And your translation should read the Lord. The original language is very specific, not just Christ Jesus Lord. It's Christ Jesus the Lord, capturing that Jesus is unparalleled in his sovereignty, in his supremacy, in his rule, in his authority. It means that Jesus is not made to be king. He is king. He is authority, He is ruler, He is supreme. And so when I say that my tradition is Christ Jesus the Lord, what am I saying? I am saying that Jesus is the core of everything in the universe. He's the core of God's redemptive plan. He's the core of my life, that everything revolves around Him. I'm saying there's no one greater, no one more attractive, no one more worthy, no one more sufficient. I'm saying He's the center of creation, redemption, substitution, justification, sanctification, glorification, and any other action you can think of. It means that only Jesus could be that beautiful blend of sovereignty and power and gentility and grace. It means that while there are many things that I love and cherish about life and ministry, everything pales in comparison to Him. And it means that every good thing I receive or I experience on Sunday, should draw me to Him. You see, I want you leaving Sunday morning not saying, wow, that was great music, even if it was. I want you leaving Sunday morning not saying, wow, that was a good sermon. I want you leaving Sunday morning saying this, wow, did I meet with Jesus today. That's what our aim is. To be conduits so that you could be able to say with new passion and new vigor, my tradition, you know what my tradition is? My tradition is Christ Jesus the Lord. That's what my tradition is. That He is the anointed one. He is the Lord is salvation one. He is the sovereign ruling one. He is Christ Jesus the Lord. And we need to help people be rooted in that truth. Then the text says that if we understand this, that we will then walk in Him. See what it says? Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in Him. You see, the word walk in the Bible often refers to how we live. And the reason is, is that because how a person walks often tells you a lot about what they're like. Let me give you an example. Okay? I'm going to be... Um, let Steve be my counselor today. Steve, you're my counselor. I want you to diagnose my heart. I'm the counselee. Are you ready? Steve's going to diagnose me. 
You ready? Here we go. Imagine I walk into church like this. Hey, Paul, how's it going, man? All right, what's my problem? George Jefferson, yeah. <laughs> what's that? Prideful, all right, yeah. I'm moving on up. Yeah, that's right, okay. George Jefferson. I um, So what my walk demonstrates what's going on on the inside, right? I had uh, some uh, shop teachers in high school, um, two guys that uh, they wore cowboy boots, and they ran the shop class, and when they walked down the hallways, I'll show you how they walked, and you tell me what their class was like based upon how they walked. This is how they walked. You ready? Two shop teachers, and they usually were parallel, and when they walked down the hall, you got out of their way. Here's why. Because they walked like this. <laughs> now, you can take shop class. Is it going to be an intense class or kind of a do-whatever-you-want class? <laughs> intense class, right? Which is pretty good when you got buzz saws going, right? You have intense teachers, right? Savannah knows the difference between daddy's going to get you walk and the, you better come here right now, little girl, walk. She knows it. I tell her to come here, and she says, no. And I take one step. So, okay, 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 Dad. She knows, right? The walk tells you what's going on on the inside. And here's what Paul says. If you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, then you are to walk in Him. In other words, there is supposed to be a direct connection between your understanding of who Christ is and how you walk. There's supposed to be a direct connection between what you know to be true about Him and how you make it work and how you make it live in everyday life. Therefore, let me give you a couple things. In light of this, I want you to understand that a lack of connection, a lack of connection between Christ and your life is not normal. Listen to me. Jesus is supposed to take over your life, and what you hear on Sunday is supposed to be worked out in how you live. doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. But it does mean that if you can come week after week, make no connection to your life of what you hear, if you come and you rarely feel convicted, you hardly feel motivated to do anything, you need to know that is not good, that's not normal, and you can't stay there very long. I don't worry about the person who comes and they're convicted and they're, they're burdened and they know how bad they are. They, they struggle and they even keep feeling, or keep, keep failing rather, but they keep trying. I don't worry about that person. I worry about the person who comes in church is just what they do. They come and they sit because after all, it's Sunday morning, gotta be in church, got my Sunday clothes, got my Sunday smile, got my Bible, and I come and I let you try and convince me, preacher, that I should do a thing. That person needs to understand that they not only have a problem with how they live, they have a problem with who Christ is because He is a sovereign King. He cannot be trifled with or somehow dealt so lightly that you think you can just decide when and where you're gonna choose to follow Him. The second thing, and this is, sometimes I write an application that's just for me, and this is one. So you just don't have to listen if you don't want, but this is me. The solution to a faltering walk is focusing more on Jesus, not more on yourself. Here's, here's what I tend to do. And I'm sure there's like two of you out there that struggle with this too. When, when my walk starts to falter, or I start to not walk in a way that I know I should, I, I tend to try and figure out why. I look at myself, I 
write it all out. I put it on a page. I got this thing and this thing. I diagram my life. I try and figure it all out. I got this and this and this. Put it together. And before long, my wife has to come to me and shake me and say, "Stop thinking, right? Stop it." And you know what I've learned? I've, I've learned that I don't know a whole lot. I've learned that I can't figure me out. I've learned that I can't figure my wife out. She doesn't diagram well, right? My, my kids don't diagram well. I, I can't figure them out. And, and I want to just not make it overly simple, but the bottom line is, is that the solution to my faltering walk is not a new accountability partner. If I was to come and say to you, what, 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 what do you need in your spiritual life? I need accountability. I need someone to get in my face and say, read your Bible, read your Bible, get pray. I mean, if that's what you need, you got problems. Oh, we, we can find you someone like that, you know. Get up, get down, read. You're slime, and we can find someone like that. You're like, I need accountability. Just want to get in my face. If that, I mean, I wouldn't come up to you and say, love your wife, kiss on your kids. I mean, that's... Push him on the swing set. That's so hard. You know what I mean? You know, we don't have to have that in other areas. Why do we think we need to have that with Christ? The reason is because there's often a disconnect between the relationship that we have with Jesus and our things that we are using to try and bring us to Him. So rather than trying figuring me out, I don't need a new accountability. I don't need a new book. I don't need a new person. I don't need a new sermon. I don't need what you know. What I need. I need to learn how to love on Jesus. i got to return to the fact that Jesus was the God-man in the flesh. God sent Him in a personal form. Why? So that we could know that He's a, a person and we could have a personal relationship with Him. The older I get, the more I realize that I'm not only not good at figuring anything out, but I also realize that the more I falter, the more I need to focus on Christ. So in the midst of all the things that were swirling around in this church, Paul says, look, the tradition that I want you to receive is this. Christ Jesus the Lord. Root your kids, root your family, root your marriage, root your church. Root your heart in that. It's the only tradition that will last. It's the only tradition that at the end of the day will draw deep enough roots so that you can weather the storms of life. So how do we help people last over the long haul? Here's how. We don't let them trust in programs or methods or or means. We point them to Jesus. And we say to them, you have to trust in Him because He's the only one that can really change your life. In light of that, then, that's what we've received. Then what does walking look like? Look at verse 7. It says this, Rooted built up in Him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Rooted, grounded, built up in Him. So walking, there's there's four things that are listed there. The first three are passive. This is important. The first three are passive. Rooted, built up, and established are all things that God does to us. So we need to let Him do His work and stop hindering His activity. There are some of you who today God wants to root you in Himself, and you look around, and the real problem in your ability to grow is you. You're resisting. 
And to be rooted in Him means that essentially I've come to understand that I need to be dependent upon Him. Jesus said that He's the vine and we're the branch. And He takes wild branches and some of you are really wild branches. And God took you and He, he grafted you to Christ. And now when He looks at you and He looks at Christ, all He sees is one branch with this Beautiful vine, it's attached to it. He no longer sees the wildness of you, but now you're connected to Him. And this means that everything that God did for you in Christ, He did positionally and practically such that now your life flows from this beautiful reality of all that you have in Jesus. So what does it mean to walk? It means that I continually go back over and over and over to the reality of what the Gospel is. It means that as I grow in spiritual maturity, I understand that I'm not becoming more independent. That spiritual maturity means I become more dependent. That spiritual maturity is not knowing more, it's knowing that you know less. It's weird that way. I remember being in seminary and uh, Dr. Greer about every four days would say, I don't know about something. And I'm sitting there saying, wait a minute. How could you not know the answer to that question? Like, well, I don't know. I'm like, dude, you have to know. If you don't know, no one knows, right? (laughs) And I'm thinking, come on, you've got to know. No, I don't. You see, the, the more mature someone is, the more they know what they don't know and the more they know what they do know. And they also know that greater independence is not the mark of spiritual maturity, but rather greater dependence is the mark. So to be rooted and grounded in Him first means that I'm connected to Him, I'm dependent upon Him. The second thing is, means that I'm going to grow, I'm, I'm built up. It's an architectural metaphor. It means that like a tree that loses its roots topples over, so a building that is only partially built is an eyesore. Like that section in the Indie Star where they show properties that are uh, a mess, right? It's a little shame section. They're hoping that someone will see that property and get embarrassed and then go clean it up. And by the way, if your property ever is there, I'm going to call you, right? Hey, clean up your yard, right? So there it is. And they're going to show you that an eyesore is a building that's only partially finished or a yard that's been let go. And so Paul calls believers to grow in such a way that their visible progress is evident that they would have a a well-constructed spiritual life that could actually mark their life by increments of growth. It's it's the joy, Steve, that um, their Tonys and your other brother feel for you. You're like a growth board to them. They see you grow, you can launch it down to China, and, and their hearts are just bursting. This is a great day for them. In my parents' house, they have, we have this growth board that my dad charted my um, growth as a kid. I used to think it was kind of silly that he would do that every birthday. Come on, let's go down and mark your heights on the board, Mark. So I'd go down there and he'd, you know, do it. Now I love that board because I can see my sons, you know. And, and, and we mark their, their heights at their last birthday. I said, Dad, get the board out. Let's do it. So my dad sets up the board and Hayden's there and Joseph's there. And those twins, they're like an inch and a half ahead of me where I was at their age. I'm thinking, boy, you're going to be like 6'7", six, 6'8", six, going to be like dunking the ball in the NBA. No, I'm thinking, you know, they're going to grow. And I look at them, and I, I said to my wife the other day, honey, you're like, you're like as big as a 12-year-old boy. I mean, actually almost as tall as she is. And Jeremiah is an inch and a half ahead, and then there's little Savannah, who's our little peanut, and she's like in the, the bottom 10 percentile on growth. She's like in the 100 percentile of cuteness, but she's in the bottom percentile of, of, of growth. And, I, and, and you can see the growth marks. And we, we stood there, my wife was looking at age 14, 15, and 16. I grew like four inches each year. Ow, right? And she was like, wow, look at that. 
You could see the incremental growth. And what Paul says is being rooted in Christ means that there's visible, evident, tangible spiritual growth. So here's my question. As you look at your life the last year, is there evidence of real, tangible spiritual growth? Or have you just been kind of coasting along? What's the solution? The solution is for you to recognize that being rooted in Christ means that you know who He is and you want to know Him. And so the call of the heart this morning may simply be, Jesus, I've got to grow and I want to know You. No more tricks, no more trinkets, no more little programs, no more of this silly little things trying to figure out how to do it. I just need to repent and say, help me, Christ. I need to grow. The third is increasing strength. Meaning that the more you grow, the more you trust in the Word. It means that maturity, by definition, is having less confidence in yourself and more confidence in the Word. And this is really important for those of you who are senior citizens who have known Christ for a long time. You may feel like, well, what do we have to offer? Let me tell you what you have to offer the church. You have to offer the church and young people a historical view of the trustworthiness of Christ and can tell kids over and over and over, look, Jesus is always faithful. Don't give up. Don't quit. And we need you to preach that to us young, want to quit, want to give up, want to whine, kind of hearted people. And finally, we have abundant gratitude. So the other piece that needs to be a part of this, how do we walk in light of who Christ is, is we have abundant gratitude. We're abounding in thanksgiving. The word abounding means to have in excess, to excel, to superabound. It means not only that we have rooted and built up and established by God. All these things were done to us. Those are all in the passive voice. Now here's the only one that's in the active. Think of this. It means that the thing that should characterize our lives and our walk, if we really know who Christ is, is this perpetual, aggressive, active, and excessive gratitude. So much so that your kids are like, oh, I know, Dad, it's all about Jesus. That needs to be the tone of your home. That you're just so thrilled with who Jesus is, so thankful for what He's done, that it just permeates your life. I mean, that you turn everything for the glory of God into an opportunity to thank Christ. So you, you got hot dogs for lunch this afternoon. Right? You're, you're bowing your head, you're praying, you're like, Lord, we thank you for these hot dogs. We have no idea where the meat came from, nor do we know how it got in there. But we're thankful for it because you gave it to us. So you transform hot dogs in an opportunity to point your kids, use hot dogs for the glory of God. That's how you do that. Even though you have no idea what kind of meat it is. That's how you do it. You, you take life and you import Christ in the middle of it. Later on in Colossians, we're going to see this. Whether you eat or drink, do all for the glory of God. That's his point. Take this and make much of Jesus by being filled with gratitude for all that he's done. So how do you help people grow and remain over the long haul? Two things. One, you keep pointing them to Christ. Get out of the way. Help them to see Jesus. Point them to Him. Help them know that He's the one that they need to trust in. He's the roots that they need to be embedded in. And the second thing is help people know all the time that if you really know who Christ is, then you're really going to walk and follow with Him. And what does that look like? It means that I'm growing in my dependency. It means I'm serious about spiritual growth. It means I'm strengthened by the Word. I seek Christ can can fulfill my desires and needs. He's always been there. And finally, that I see that gratitude then becomes the characteristic of my life because I've never gotten over what Jesus has done for me. You see, when Jesus becomes the core, He transforms everything. 
He comes and takes over, and a Jesus-centered ministry essentially is helping people make the connection between Jesus Christ the Lord and where they live. And we got to help people make that connection, and the way that we do that is being sure that Jesus Christ the Lord is the flavor of life that we love more than anything else. So while we were in northern Michigan, I introduced Savannah to Superman ice cream. She loves ice cream. It's like one of the 30 vocabulary words that she knows. Like ice cream, and she goes, yes! And um, so I introduced her to Superman ice cream. So now all she knows is Superman ice cream. For her, for her everything else pales in comparison to Superman ice cream. And while we were on vacation, I got her three different trips to the ice cream store to get her Superman ice cream. And, of course, you know what Superman ice cream is. It's got that blue dye that gets all over your face and your clothes and stains it forever. You know, it's a, it's a real pain in the neck to moms, but it's... She loves Superman ice cream. So the other night, two nights ago, we went to Maggie Moves over here, right? So little did I know, we moved from, like, low-class ice cream to high-class ice cream. Like, the girl rang up the, the, the amount, and she's like, that'll be 19.95. And I was like, wow, hope you guys are full, because we're not eating for, like, three days, you know? <laughs> Some of my kids look kind of hungry today, because that ice cream had to last them a long time. And in front of them are all these options, all of these really kind of cool and new flavors. I mean, stuff that I never even, how did you make ice cream look like that? You know, it's just like all kinds of different stuff. And so I said to Savannah, honey, what are the, all these ice creams here, what do you want? And she looked at me, she goes, Gooberman. I said, Super, you have Superman? I was like, no, you know, it's like so offensive. Sorry, this is the high profile place, you know. So I look around and I see, oh, cotton candy, at least it's blue, right? So the lady scooped it up and gave it to her and she was so happy. She held it up. She goes, Superman, dad, Superman. She loves, for her, the defining flavor of ice cream for her is Superman. And with all of the options of life that you and I have, even the options we have within things that we call church, listen, the one thing that I want to be the flavor, the appetite of your soul is this tradition. All I know is one thing defines my life. It is Jesus Christ the Lord. Be rooted in Him. Walk in Him. That's how you last over the long haul. Christ Jesus the Lord. That's our tradition. Lord Jesus, I ask you now to help us to take what we've heard this morning and make it live because there are so many flavors, so many things that would beg for our affection and our attention, so many things that would call us away from you, even good things that used to bring us to you but now have become more about the form and not the reality of Christ. Forgive us for the way in which we exalt our stuff and neglect you. Lord, I pray today, perhaps for a, a few people here today who have never confessed you as Savior and Lord, and today needs to be the day that they do that. That they would come to an end of themselves and realize that you're the only one who really is the way of salvation. No one else could pay for their sins. Only you can. So today, would you birth them into your kingdom? And for those of us who know you as Lord, we want to help our kids and our kids in our Sunday school classroom, the people in our small groups, folks in our ABF classes or friends who are struggling. We want them to be rooted in you, not us, not our formulas, not our strategies, not our material, not our sermons or our songs. We want them to be rooted in Christ and to walk in you. So please make that happen. For your namesake and for your glory, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.